0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning, beloved. How are you? If you have a Bible, open it to James chapter 3 is where we left off last week. James chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 13 through 18 this morning as we're working our way through this Glorious New Testament letter from James. As you're finding James 3, let me remind you that we are in the middle of our midweek teaching series, our latest midweek teaching series, series, and we are looking at difficult questions about what the Bible says about various topics. This particular Wednesday, February 5th, we're going to look at the issue of baptism, and we're going to drill down on the issue of, of what is the appropriate age of baptism, Uh, This is a church that practices believer's baptism, meaning that we think that the only biblical uh, candidates for baptism are those who are old enough to have a credible profession of faith. Of course, we have many brothers and sisters that uh, we love very dearly and agree with on many other areas of of doctrine that would disagree with us and believe that we should baptize infants. And so we're going to look at the differences between those two positions and why we believe the way we believe. And we'll also... Uh, then within this, uh, this, this uh, particular s- uh, stream of, of believer's baptism is uh, we're going to try and help. I'm going to try and help parents think about the appropriate age for when a person um, should be baptized. So thinking about baptizing teenagers and, and children, and we're going to look at that as well. So I pray that'll be helpful to you. We'll have dinner at 545, and then we'll start teaching at 630, and we'll be done close to, to 730, and hopefully we'll have time for questions. One of the things I love about the Bible is the starkness of the Bible. Clearly, there are parts of the Bible that are difficult to understand, uh, and it takes a lifetime of giving yourself to, to hearing God's Word. That's not because God can't communicate clearly, it's because we're fallen people, and our minds are clouded with sin. We're obscured because of our sin, not because God is unable to clearly communicate. But I love the starkness of the Bible in places. I think about the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 30, at the end of of that second giving of the law, Moses, God through Moses speaks to the people and he says, I I set before you life and death, choose life. Then Joshua, at the end of, of the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 24, there's this renewal of the covenant where Joshua basically says the same thing, God is setting before us. Serving him or serving all of these false gods. And he says, he concludes before he dies, he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Or maybe it's Elijah, the prophet Elijah, uh, as he's standing before the 450 prophets of Baal in in 1 Kings 18. and, And Elijah, almost in a mocking tone really, confronts these false prophets and he says, why are you limping between two opinions? Serve God or serve these false prophets? Or then we go into the New Testament and we read in Romans chapter 5 where Paul basically says that there are really only two types of people in the world. There are those that are still in Adam, dead in their sins, or there are those that are in Christ, made alive and in Christ, receiving all the beautiful grace of justification. And even Jesus himself at the end of the gospel of Matthew in Matthew chapter 25 divides all people really into two camps. You're either a sheep Or you're a goat, and the eternal destinies that await those that are in Christ will be with him forever in heaven, or those that are goats that will be separated from him and will suffer eternal damnation forever. The Bible is very clear, it's very stark, and our text this morning speaks with a similar kind of starkness about the way of life, two kinds of wisdom, worldly wisdom and wisdom from above. So let's read our text and then we're going to contrast worldly wisdom with wisdom from above which is James's point in this text. James chapter 3 verse 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us, and let's think deeply about this text as we hear God's Word. Let's ask Him to show us Himself this morning. Lord, this, this passage leads us into a better understanding of how to live life, how to walk in the way of wisdom rather than walk in the f- way of this world, but we will completely miss the point of this passage if, if we just sort of gather up for ourselves some adjectives that point us in a direction about how we can live better lives here on this earth for 70 or 80 or 90 years. This verse isn't so much about pragmatism as it is about seeing you. Our eyes are obscured. The world is foggy. We need to see you and all of your glory and the way of wisdom that that opens up for us. Lord, break through the clutter. Break through the things that Cause our eyes to be dim and the world around us that is just filled with fog, break through that, blow through that with your Holy Spirit this morning and use your word that your spirit has inspired and and show us yourself and cause us to walk in wisdom so that we might make it all the way home so that we might know more of you and enjoy more of you. And for our friends that are in this room, as we've already prayed several times, Lord, They need more than tips on how to live a more wise life. They need Christ, who is wisdom. They need your grace. They need a new heart. So give it to them, Lord, I pray, and help me speak. Help me communicate. Make us more like Christ as we leave this room and as we prepare after this time in your word to come to the table on this first Sunday of February. Lord, prepare our hearts As we are looking at this passage, may we be examining ourselves and despairing of ourselves so that we might cling more tightly to Christ. Lord, I pray that you do all this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at this passage, and and I want to contrast for us. If you're the note-taking type of person as we're working through this passage, you might make two columns, worldly wisdom and wisdom from above. And I think he, in verses 14 through 16, really looks at worldly wisdom and he describes it. And then verses 17 and 18, he's looking at, at wisdom from above or heavenly wisdom. But first verse 13, which I think is a summary, really, in many ways, of his message up to this point. Remember, James has been concerned with the sincere faith, the type of faith that is the only type of really saving faith that produces or is followed by obedience. So he's concerned with people who say that they are trusting in Christ, but there's no transformation. There's there's no obedience. There's no sanctification in their life. And James is really really concerned about that. And he's saying that if, if that's what your life looks like, if that's what your faith is, then it's a dead faith. It's not really saving faith, essentially is what he's saying. And so here in verse 13, he's saying... Who's wise and understanding among you? In other words, who really understands this type of obedience that must flow from our faith? And he says, by his good conduct, in other words, by the way we live, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So let, let the manner of your life, in your, your striving to obey God, in your confession that produces Uh, obedience in your life, let that be a display of the humility and the wisdom that you're clinging to, which is all of what God says about how we should live. So in, in ways, in a way, verse 13 is a kind of summary of not only this passage, but really all of his letter. And then in verses 14 through 16, he gives us a description of worldly wisdom. So let's look at verses 14 through 16. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not, be, do not boast and be false to the truth. Now, the, these two descriptions here, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, these, these, these descriptions are almost, almost so sort of uh, striking and descriptive that we're tempted, I think, to write ourselves out of, of, of being, you know, Uh, described by them. We rationalize, well, I mean, I I may deal with a little bit of envy now and then, but bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, that's not me. But if we think deeply about it, when it's just us, alone in our own heads, with our own hearts, we're all prone to this bitter jealousy and selfish ambition that that James is describing here. And, And we may be more prone to it than other generations, why? Because we have, I think, because of just the, the exposure that we have to each other's lives through, through digital media, through social media, we have more of a picture into one another's lives than ever before. And we secretly, I think, more than other generations, battle with a constant barrage of comparison and covetousness. We have 24-hour news channels that do more than just tell us the news and the facts, that they recruit us, they disciple us to be part of a constituency that is instinctively suspicious of anybody that disagrees with us. We're prone, probably more so than any other generation, to the insecurity that manifests itself in jealousy and selfish ambition. And underneath these things are really the exaltation of ourselves. We, we want to be made much of. We are an insecure age. We, we look at each other. We see each other more of each other's lives than other generations. And we're seeing the the, the, the the filtered version of each other's lives. And we compare ourselves to it. And we're jealous and we covet. And we're idolatrous because we, we want to be like other people that we deem as having reach some pinnacle. And at the core of it is a kind of idolatry. We, 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 John Calvin, the great reformer says that the human heart is like an idol factory. And the greatest idol that we make is the idol of self. And it causes us at the end of verse 14, what does it produce in us? This bitter jealousy and selfish ambition that is this worldly wisdom. It causes us to boast and to be false to the truth, to deceive this is where jealousy and ambition, selfish ambition, lead us. We have to lie. We have to beat our chest, and we have to present a version of ourselves that isn't quite authentic. We're all prone to do this, aren't we? What does this look like in your life? Well, Maybe it's subtly criticizing someone else that you're threatened by or jealous of, and we, 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 we're... we're We're more mature than just coming out and saying it outright. So we just kind of, just a little seed of doubt where we just mildly undercut the person so where we couldn't be accused of slander, but where we just sow seeds of doubt. Or we subtly exaggerate something about our past or something that we've done to make ourselves look just a little bit more clever or sharp than we actually were or are. Does anybody else do this? I do this a lot. I was thinking about it. I'm just convicted, just how I'm thinking about it. And even sometimes telling stories from my past or something, it just seems like it just gets better and better every time you tell it. <laughs> Isn't that just the human condition? When we do that, we're buying in. It's a subtle, it's a socially acceptable version of boasting and being false to the truth. And what's underneath it? It's a kind of selfish ambition and bitter jealousy that, that wants us to be made much of. Us to be the one that's above the fray. Us to be the one that is, that is, that is cool and hip or whatever. Us, the one that is that just somehow the one to be admired. At its core, it's a jealousy ambition that causes us to boast and lie. And where does James say this comes from? Verse 15, he says, This wisdom is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, it's unspiritual, and it's demonic. In James chapter 1, when we looked at temptation, we, we, we considered this phrase, this, this, this sort of unholy trinity that we see all throughout the New Testament of the world, the flesh, and the devil. All of us are battling this unholy sort of anti-trinity, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And here in verse 15, we see where this wisdom comes from. It comes from this fallen world, this culture around us, this made up of a fallen mindset, a worldly system. And it's unspiritual. It's, it's, it's fleshly. It's, it's part of our nature that has been put to death, but still rears its ugly head. And ultimately, where's its origin? It's demonic. It's from the pits of hell. This type of wisdom that That pushes us to exalt ourselves to be jealous and ambitious is the wisdom of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And then in verse 16, look where it leads us. It says, well, where this jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. When we give ourselves over to this, all of us battle with this type of wisdom. But when we give ourselves over to this type of wisdom... It leads to a, a life of chaos, disorder, and every vile practice. Now, again, we're tempted to write ourselves out because that just seems so, so, so almost hyperbolic. Every vile practice? Well, that's not me. But friends, I can tell you that when you, when you give yourself over to this, and when the Holy Spirit, if we don't give ourselves over to, to the type of wisdom that He will contrast with in a moment, we don't give ourselves to the life of God, and to the life of His people, and to His Word, I know people that have called themselves believer that years from that point when I maybe knew them or was in fellowship with them, they are in places now where they never imagined they would be. It's a kind of slow, progressive regression into every vile practice. What what are some cultural examples of this worldly wisdom that James is talking about in verses 14, 15, and 16? All, All... All all of these things that that, that, that I'm about to mention have kind of elements of truth in them, but they're they're worldly wisdom. They're they're, they're kind of part of of an earthly system that piggybacks with our flesh, that ultimately is inspired by hell, that even as believers, we're we're sort of prone to buy into, and they become kind of cultural slogans. Things like, like, you only live once, hashtag YOLO, is that how you say it, I guess? You only live once. Well, in a sense, that's true. But at its core, what it's meant to to communicate to people is that eternity doesn't matter. So you might as well get all of the hedonistic pleasure that you can get now, all of the experiences you can get now. Never say no to yourself because in the end of all this, there's nothingness. Friends, that is an anti-God sentiment. That sentiment comes straight from the pits of hell. And that's the way this world views this, you only live once. Well, from a Christian perspective, yes, you only have one life, so live it to the glory of God. Give all that you have. Spend yourself. Give yourself away because you only live once. Not gather all that you can because you only live once. Another sort of worldly mindset. Worldly piece of wisdom. It's another famous hashtag: the fear of missing out, FOMO. And so we we bounce around from thing to thing, never really committing to anything, because we're we're scared, we're afraid that we might miss out some uh, miss out from some amazing experience. And so we float around. And I think, quite frankly, I think there's much about. There's much about millennials that I, I just, I, I really respect. I think, I think this particular generation has a capacity for depth and understanding and a kind of quickness to things that is, is really noteworthy and to be commended. But I think the other side of that is a kind of fear of commitment. You want everything to be awesome. And life mostly isn't awesome. And you fear missing out. And when you bounce around from thing to thing, the ironic thing is, is that you actually end up missing out. Another phrase that's kind of just a cultural slogan, follow your heart. Well, that if your heart is saturated with God's word and it's informed by the community of God's word and it's regenerated and it's the mind of Christ, that may, might be good wisdom. But for most of the world, that might be terrible advice. Just be yourself. Well, that cuts against the whole point of scriptures about how we're to progress in godliness. Just be yourself. Well, yourself needs to change. Do you see how a cultural mindset of just being yourself can cause you to just sort of accept who you are without the biblical pressure of growing in Christ and dying to your sin? For I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Don't just be yourself. Be Christ in you. And finally, just you do you. You do you, I'll do me. Well, very much similar to just be yourself. That that can be wicked advice. But it's advice that many of us are tempted to just sort of buy because it seems catchy, it seems sort of clever, and it seems to have some element of wisdom in it. It's worldly wisdom contrast that now with what James describes in verses 17 and 18. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. First, just look at that description about this wisdom. Where does it come from? It doesn't originate with us. It's, it's grace. It's grace. It comes from God. It must be given to us. The smartest person by nature that has ever lived has, in comparison to what really matters, no wisdom. If we are wise, it is not something that God worked with that was in us. It comes from above. Sin has killed us we are by nature stupid people we must we're completely dependent on wisdom that comes from above and even the wisdom in a sense that this world has that god uses to do great things even as he works through fallen society is a good gift. It's called common grace. It's what God gives fallen man for the grace of humanity to flourish in some level. It's not something that exists in us. It's wisdom that comes from above. So we, we, we immediately must humble ourselves as we think about wisdom. And how does James describe it? He says it's pure. It's, 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 it's centered on Christ, I think is what he's getting at there. It's pure. It's peaceable. It's gentle. It's open to reason. Just think about the, the caustic nature of much of our culture. Think about even just the political discourse. Think about the, just the aggression of what is promoted to us so much in our lives. And then think about the contrast of the Christian life that James is sketching out for us here. It's peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to reason. Not open to error, but it's open to dialogue and caring for it. It's full of mercy. It's full of compassion for people that are still caught and trapped because they're dead in their sins in a worldly system of wisdom. It's not judgmental. It's not people who, who siphon themselves off from the world and lob hand grenades at the world in disgust, but it's a group of people who have been so saturated and are so aware that all that they have is from God that it produces in them a merciful disposition to the world around them. Not an accepting, not that we give ourselves over, but it's a merciful wisdom that cares deeply for the world around us and it cares deeply for our brothers and sisters who are in varying levels of growing in wisdom and it's full of good fruits. It's impartial, it doesn't, doesn't pick favorites, and it's sincere, it's genuine, it's authentic. And then what's the result of that? Verse 18, James says that it produces a harvest of righteousness, just sown in peace by those who make peace. There's this spiritual fruit, there's this righteousness that comes from people that live this way. What a beautiful description. Of sanctification of the Christian life. So the question now is that we'll consider for the rest of this message. It will end on is how, how do we get this wisdom from above? What are some practical steps about how we can live in verses seventeen and eighteen, as opposed to verses? 14 through 16. How? What does the Bible have to say for us about how we get this wisdom from above? Because I think what James is saying here is very clear to understand. There's there's two ways to live. There's the way according to the world and its wisdom, which is fallen, and there's the way according to Christ, which is his wisdom, which is from above. How do we get this wisdom from above? Well, first, and this will surprise you, I'm sure, know, believe, believe, remember and cling to the gospel daily. You say, Brad, we hear that a lot here. I know. But friends, I want us to see the centrality of the gospel in the Christian life, not just for salvation, but in the Christian life. First, let's think about what is the gospel. For those of you that may be here for the first time or you're visiting, this is your first few times here, or maybe you've been here for a long time. I don't wanna, I don't wanna assume that this might not be the case for you, Well, so maybe you've been here for a long time, and maybe, for whatever reason, the gospel's just nearly, never really clearly penetrated your heart and mind. God's never opened your eyes, and that's possible. What is the gospel? The gospel, first this word gospel means news. It's a proclamation of what God has done. This is the story of the whole Bible. The gospel is really what Genesis to Revelation is all about. It's the good news of a holy and sovereign God who has made everything for his glory. This God is good, he's timeless, he's eternal, he has no beginning and no end. And he's triune, which is a word that means he's three in one, he's Father. Son and Holy Spirit, these three in one, one God, have always existed and always will exist and are completely good and holy and sovereign. Nothing can stop their hand. Nothing. He does all that he pleases, the Bible tells us in Psalm 115. And for his glory, not because he needed us or because he was lonely, But for his glory, God created everything that is by his word. He spoke everything that is into existence. And he spoke this world into existence. And as the pinnacle of his creation, he made mankind, Adam and Eve, our first parents. Everybody in this room descends from two people, Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve were given the ability to obey God and to be his image bearers in creation and to steward his creation, but they willfully rebelled against God. They rebelled against God, disobeyed his command, and their sin and their rebellion separated them from God. In death, they were, they were in a sense, excommunicated from his presence. They were, they, were, they, they were separated from God. Now, this didn't surprise God, God knew this was gonna happen. This is a mystery that we can't fully understand. But God, having created Adam and Eve in his image with the capacity to obey him, but also with the capacity to disobey him, he knew that they would, and he had some divine glorious purpose in that because we read later in the Bible that God has prepared for the fall through his son Jesus, the good news that we're gonna get to in a second, He prepared for it before the foundations of the earth. So it's not like what happened in the fall in Adam and Eve in the garden somehow surprised God. It's all according to God's sovereign good purpose that we read about earlier in Ephesians chapter 1. And Adam and Eve fell. They were separated from him. And they are now spiritually dead to disobey God who is life is to take God's wrath on ourselves, God's justice, because God is holy. He can't abide with sin. And now Adam and Eve are dead in their sins. They're separated from Him under God's just judgment. And now everything that comes from Adam and Eve, who are the fountainhead of humanity, everything that comes from them is polluted and sinful and tainted. That's us. We are all, by nature, sinners. We, we sin because we are by nature sinners. We aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's our nature, because we flow from this fountainhead of humanity, which is Adam and Eve. And to be a sinner means that you're separated from God who is holy, to mean that you're dead. It means that you're spiritually unable to do anything to make yourselves right with God. That's the way humanity starts off in the early parts of the Bible. And that's the way you and I start off in our birth. That's the bad news. The good news of the gospel is that God does not leave mankind in this helpless estate. He he comes to us through himself, his son, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, God the Son, becomes a man. And he, where all of us as mankind have disobeyed God, Jesus completely obeys God perfectly in his life. He never sins. He's tempted in all ways as we are. He feels what we have felt, but he resists it perfectly and lives a life of perfect obedience as a full, true human. And then he lays down willingly his life as a man on the cross to bear the wrath of God the Father. So what's going on on the cross is you see this exchange, this interaction between God himself the Trinity. God the Father is punishing God the Son who deserved no punishment. So the only true righteous one is substituting himself for all of us who are unrighteous. And Jesus takes Jesus, the perfect God-man, who knew no sin. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians, became sin for us. And so all of the wrath of God that should have been ours, that we justly deserved, Jesus steps in front of, substitutes himself in front of, and takes. And the Bible says that he satisfies it. He extinguishes it. He removes it. He takes it away as far as the east is from the west. And he takes that wrath and judgment and he removes it. And in place of it, he gives us his righteousness on the cross. That's what Jesus, the son of God, is doing in his life, and his death, and his resurrection. And he defeats sin and death. He defeats the consequences of our law breaking. He satisfies God's wrath and he triumphs over our enemy, the devil and the flesh and the world. And he rises victoriously as the king who is alive, reigning and now commands all of us, every boy, every girl, every man, every woman to turn from trusting in ourselves and to put our hope in him. But here's the the dilemma. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Our ears are deaf. Our eyes are blind. So how can we believe if we can't hear? And how can we see him if our eyes are blind? And how can our hearts love him if our hearts are hearts of stone? Well, here's where the good news gets even gooder. When God saves people, he doesn't say, agree with this, meet me halfway. He doesn't say, gin up some little bit of faith and goodness that's in you. He actually gives a person what he commands them to have. He gives them a new heart. Our hearts are dead and he does heart surgery, spiritually speaking, and he gives us a heart of flesh where there was a heart of stone. That's why Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in our trespasses, but he made us alive. He resurrects us spiritually. We were dead, boom, now we're alive. And now that new heart, instantaneously, is enabled to do what God says we must do, which is repent and believe, which is to turn from trusting in ourselves, turn from our old way of life, to turn from this worldly wisdom and to trust in him. That is a consequence of what God has already done to you, not something that you must do for God to meet you halfway. Do you get that? You must see that. That's why the good news is so thoroughly good. It's not sort of good if you will make it good. It's good all the way. It is mighty for God, mighty to God for saving sinners. And he makes us alive. Now think about this logically. If God has done all of that to make his people alive, those whom he saves, if he has sent his son to bear the weight of their sin, And caused his son to suffer on the cross. To rise again. And if he has resurrected you and given you a new heart. He is so radically committed to you making it all the way home. That that gospel isn't just the good news for that moment of salvation. But that gospel is the good news of God's eternal commitment to bringing you all the way home to himself. So do you see how the gospel is not just a set of facts that you must believe at the beginning of life in order to have new life or to sort of sign some fire insurance policy for eternity, but the gospel is so overwhelmingly good. It's so gloriously gracious. It's so full of mercy. It is so centered that it overwhelms our hearts, and it's not just the moment of salvation, but it's God's commitment for the whole process of salvation. And so we rest in that, we live from that, we believe it, we remember it, we cling to it daily, and it not only saves us in the moment, it transforms us day and day as we remember God's commitment, not just to wipe away our sins, but to make us like Jesus and bring us all the way home. And when we see that, friends, we see that the way that we get wisdom is centered first in knowing and depending and deepening our appreciation and our worship for God, for the good news of the gospel, for what he has done to save us. Tim Keller's a a pastor in New York City, and he wrote a little article called The Centrality of the Gospel. And listen to this. He says, I think this is so spot on. He says, the main problem then in the Christian life is that we have not thought out the deep implications of the gospel. We have not used the gospel in and on all parts of our lives. All of us, to some degree, live around the truth of the gospel, but do not get it. So the key to continual And deeper spiritual renewal and revival is the continual rediscovery of the gospel. So how does that work out in the context of our text this morning and how we get wisdom? Okay, I think I became a Christian. I think I received the gospel. I think I was born again sometime around in March of 1989 my senior year in high school. My older brother shared the gospel with me over the course of several years. Eventually it broke through, and there was this evangelist that was in town doing a crusade, and he preached the gospel. My brother and sister-in-law took me to this crusade, and that was like, the, I think, that was the moment of my birth, my rebirth. And now I'm 31 years in, and how now do I pursue wisdom? How do I fight sin? How do I live in a way that's pure and peaceable and gentle? Not by moving on to the deeper parts of the Christian life, but by going deeper in really the only part of the Christian life, which is the good news of the gospel. I remember God's radical commitment to me. I know that the gospel's not just the wiping away of my sins, but it's that God's Spirit has been given to me, that He is sanctifying me, that He has taken my sin, even the sins that I still struggle with, and He's, he's removed it, He's died for it, and so I, I'm freshly humbled I'm fresh. My heart is freshly warmed by the fact that God isn't just my Savior, but He's my Lord and He's my Father. And it deepens me. It plants me deeper. It anchors me. It it equips me. It blows away the fog. It reclarifies for me the most important thing in the universe, which is God's saving of sinners, me in particular in this moment, and God's promise that I will make it all the way home. And it it girds me up to walk in the way that I know he has said I will walk in that's how we believe and remember and cling to the gospel daily friends do you know the gospel my prayer my prayer is that if you don't even if you think you do and you don't the the, the glory the grace the sovereign will of God would break through right now. I'm praying. I prayed this week. I'm praying this morning. I'm, I'm, even now, I, I ask God that he, would, that he would take any dead hearts in this room and that he would make them alive, that you're not saved by your goodness. You're not saved by anything you can do. You are completely dependent on God. And if you see that, that's the first step in understanding that God's chasing you down. He's going to get you turned from your sin and trust in Christ second way that we get wisdom from above again this may seem elementary but it's it's just foundational take in God's word I don't want to spend much time on this I, I, I think we talk about it a lot just friends expose yourself to God's word that's why we preach through books of the Bible that's why we spend most of our time I, I don't I'm not uh, we want to just I was talking to a sister this week in the church and she said I just appreciate how you guys just take books of the Bible and work your way through them, because she says, I think I understand James better now, and I think I understand Romans better now. And I said, you're right, sister. I don't, I don't want you to remember any sermons. I don't have really anything good to say. I don't have, I don't, I don't have anything particularly good to say. But I, I think I can read God's Word along with the other pastors here, and I think we can explain it. And as we marinate in God's Word, it changes us Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. 2 Timothy 3, verse 15 and following, Paul's writing to Timothy and he says, From childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, meaning the Bible, the Old Testament at that point, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God or the woman of God clearly may be complete, equipped for every good work. Listen, be encouraged. If you're struggling with the discipline to take in God's word on a regular basis, I want to say to you, welcome to the Christian life. Okay? So do I. In fact, I often thank God. I think one of the keys to my sanctification has been the fact that I'm a pastor. And Sundays come like the tide. It comes every week. Every day, it just rolls. And I I have to study God's Word because I have to get up here and not make a fool of myself and waste your time and diminish the glory of God. And so in a way... I just counted God's grace that I just, I just, if I didn't have to get up here, I would struggle much more than I do in the discipline of reading God's word. And maybe somebody, some of you are disappointed and you're going to, oh my God, Brad, can you say, some of you are encouraged by that. Be encouraged by that. It's a fight. It's a fight to take in God's word because we're the most distracted people in the history of civilization. We are like lab rats on some experimental drug. And we just scurry off. We, we, can't, we can't keep our attention focused for more than 30 seconds, this world we live in. So I'm saying to you, I'm not saying that to shame you. I'm saying that to say, that's the way it is, friends. But fight. Remember the gospel. God's committed to you. He has promised that you will make it all the way home. He's given you a new heart. Greater is he that's in you that's in the world. So fight. Be encouraged. Roll up your sleeves. You fall down one day, get up the next. We understand grit in every other area of life. We understand that if you want to run a marathon, you got to train. If you want to lift a certain amount of weights, you got to train. If you want to do this, you got to train. If you want to learn some skill vocationally, you got to train. It's the same way in taking in God's word. Apply it here too and give yourself grace and fight. Maybe you started a Bible reading plan and you stopped January 10th and now it's February 2nd. Well, guess what? It's February 2nd. Pick up your Bible and read it. Some suggestions, just read an epistle in one sitting. Start with the Gospel of Mark. It's short and quick, to the point. Read a proverb a day. Read a psalm a day. Fight, 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 dear friend. Fight to read the Bible thirdly, finally, plant yourself in an ordinary church that teaches the Bible faithfully. I think this is the pathway. I think this is the incubator of wisdom, and I use the word ordinary intentionally and on purpose. Why? Because most of life is pretty ordinary, and most of us are pretty ordinary, and I think one of the spiritual battles that a lot of us face. I think one of the tricks of the enemy is this addiction to awesomeness that we have in the American culture. And what it does is it trains us unhelpfully to live on endorphin rushes spiritually. But that's not how the Christian life is. This is the problem I have with awesome churches. They have to keep being awesome. Sunday after Sunday but the Christian life is not awesome so beware of churches that are awesome it's just just not the way it is where everything has to be cool where everything on the stage has to be a big production and week after week it's just the best, it's the greater it's this, we're pushing, we're going and it's just never actually gets there it's not the way we're designed. We're, we're fallen people and we're fighting to grow in Christ. Yes, we're pursuing excellence, but there's this beautiful truth of the quiet, peaceable life of obedience. The addiction that we have to awesomeness in our culture is a kind of idolatry and selfish ambition itself. Ordinary, imperfect communities and churches and groups of people in a local church, that are fiercely committed to God's word and living it out, are the incubators for this way of wisdom that James is sketching out for us. We grow through plowing, through plodding, through stretching, through straining, and listen to this, through enduring with other people that aren't that awesome like us. In fact, I think that's part of God's design for wisdom. He has designed us to glean and to grow in wisdom as we learn to deal with one another in all of our cumulative sort of lack of wisdom. But together, we have a communal wisdom that God uses to help us grow in wisdom as we put ourselves in that type of Bible-saturated community. We deal with one another. We deal with our imperfections. We have to have patience with one another. We have to give patience. We have to receive patience. We have to assume the best towards one another. We have to accept one another in our varying levels of maturity. And part of that is how God calms us down and grows us and makes us understand the world in a more wise, biblical way, and he gives us grace. One of my favorite books about church life and pastoral ministry Is this book called The Work of the Pastor from this Scottish pastor back in the mid-1900s called William Still, named William Still. I've read this quote before, I love it. He's talking more about pastoral ministry, but I think there's application here to just this sort of plodding, faithful, ordinary, unspectacular kind of culture of wisdom. And part of the way God brings that wisdom is by us having to deal with one another in our non-awesomeness and how he grows us together. This is what Still says. Next to the ministry of the word, the most fruitful pastoral duty is to help all sorts of odd sheep live together. He's talking about us, by the way. And show them how to live in the world among goats without becoming goats. That's, that's wisdom, right? The testimony of a true Christian church ought to be how Christians love one another, including the oddbots. <laughs> in other words, weirdos. Remember, Jesus loves nerds. Christ likes oddbods. See? Still agrees with us. I sometimes say that nearly all the fruitful Christian ministers and fruitful laymen I know are oddbods. I, I, I identify and agree with that. But they are oddbods with a mission, a mission to fit other oddbods along with themselves into a fellowship. We grow together, we're patient with one another, we're peaceable. We're open to reason, we're full of mercy. We're sincere. Our heads are on a swivel for people that seem like they're on the outside. This is how you grow in wisdom. You grow in wisdom, not by seeing wisdom so much as a commodity that you must gain so that you can live life in a more successful way. But you grow in wisdom as you live life in community, getting your eyes Off of yourself, strangely, and caring about other people, being peaceable, gentle, pursuing purity, being open to reason, full of mercy, caring for other people more than you care for self, and as a byproduct of that, you you cultivate a kind of way of wisdom in your life. And what happens in your life? A harvest of righteousness is sown. So you just go to sleep and you get back up and you do life with people like that, and just somehow or another mysteriously a harvest of righteousness a way of wisdom grows in your life and you just become a stable type of person whose feet are on the ground who has a good head on your shoulders who's growing in christ who's caring more about others than yourself who's growing in wisdom and god uses that type of ordinary unspectacular anonymous life for beautiful beautiful things beautiful things and you put a bunch of those people together oh friends when you do that in a church, Beautiful things happen. Beautiful things happen. I think that's happening here. Let's keep doing it. Let's keep doing it. We come now to the table, to the the communion table. And it reminds us to look to Christ, to look to one another. In just a moment, we're going to take a little piece of bread and we're going to take a cup and we're going to reconfess. We're going to reaffirm We're going to say again that our hope is not in ourselves, that this bread represents Jesus that was crucified on a cross for us. His body was broken for us. He died for us. And his blood was spilled to wash us from our sins, to to make us his own. He has a new covenant, a covenant written in his blood that he will bring all of his people home. When we come to this table and we take this meal, we are saying that we are trusting in the wisdom of God in the goodness of the gospel and sending his son to die for sinners and causing them to rise again in victory and sealing their redemption. We are saying that we're trusting in Christ, wisdom from above, salvation from above. We're saying that as we come to this table. So that means if you're not a believer yet, in just a moment we're going to stand up, the band's going to play, and we're going to invite believers to come to this table to take of this meal, to remember, to cling to this gospel. That's what we're doing. In a sense as we come to this table, we're just living out point number 1, no, believe, remember and cling to the gospel. If you're not yet a believer, you shouldn't do that, not because we're trying to ostracize you or because we're trying to make you uncomfortable. But because we love you and we don't want you to do something, number one, that you don't yet believe just out of, you know, just social pressure. And two, we don't want to give you false assurance that just by coming to this table that you've done something that somehow is going to merit you before God. No, you must believe. You you need to do more than just put a piece of bread and a piece of juice in your mouth. You must believe. You must trust. God must give you a new heart. If you're not yet a believer, you shouldn't do that. Of course we want to talk to you. Don't leave this room today. Maybe, maybe God is opening up your heart. Don't leave this room today without talking to somebody that you know to be a Christian. I'll hang around. I'll stay here for as long as you want and explain any questions, answer any questions that you may have about the gospel. Nothing's more important than you getting this. But now for us believers, for those of us that are trusting in this gospel, we're coming to this table to remember believe, and cling to the gospel. Let's pray. Father, as we come now, as we worship, and as we wait on one another, lead us in the way of wisdom. Lead us in this way. Lord, do things that a message can't do. Go deeper in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. People in this room that are prone to give themselves over to vile practices. Rescue them, Lord. Sow righteousness in our hearts. Renew our hearts, Lord, that we might walk in wisdom and cling to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.